0: Galatians five twenty two and 23. Listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And I'll turn over to 1 Corinthians nine nineteen through 27. For though I am free from all... To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all possible means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray
1: together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you... um, That you, that we can call upon you as our Father, even when our earthly fathers have all let us down, Uh, we are reminded uh, in you of what a true Father is, and you are a Father who loves His children so much that you gave your only Son, Um, and in Him you have given to us every spiritual blessing. You have provided for all of our needs, and so we pray and ask that you would take now these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings that have first come to us from your gracious hand and that you would use them in order that your kingdom would be revealed here and throughout the world in order that the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we pray for the gospel to be proclaimed to all the nations, it is our prayer this very morning that the good news would be proclaimed to us Christian or not, this morning, we need to hear this story, be reminded of this good news, that Jesus came, and He came because we are far more broken than we could ever imagine. But because He came, we can be assured this very morning that even though we are far more broken than we could ever imagine, in Him we are also far more loved and far more accepted and far more approved of than we could have ever dreamed possible. So lift our eyes this morning, we pray, to see Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. And please be seated. In the children ages 3 to 1st grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church this morning. Um, so if you make your way to the back, you'll be taken to your class. Um, this morning, we're finishing a brief series that we've had on what Paul called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Um, he described this fruit of the Spirit with several words, and we've been looking at each of those words uh, for several weeks now. And what we've been saying every week is, is something like this. Um, we've been saying that when the Spirit comes and makes Jesus real to you. When he comes and he makes the gospel real to your heart, he changes you. Um, He changes you from the inside out because it's when the good news of the gospel gets planted in the soil of our hearts that it bears a gospel fruit in our lives. And this morning we've come to the final word, which is self-control, and this morning we want to see how the gospel can create self-control in our lives. And I really need you to think about this this morning, because what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 um, about self-control is very profound, but It's also very counterintuitive. Um, And even though we won't fully get there until our last point this morning, it's so counterintuitive that I really need you to begin processing it um, now. Um, you know, something's counterintuitive when um, when your common-sense assumptions uh, turn out to be false, um, and, some, and it, it turns your assumptions upside down and on their head. Um, and here's an example of that. Um, for centuries and centuries, right, um, Everyone knew it just knew that the world was flat right and uh, it, it was observable to, to people it was common sense um, you would be considered a heretic if you believed anything contrary to that um, and that is of course until it was finally discovered that the earth was in fact round and that turned everything upside down it, it changed all of our assumptions about the world right and here's how we here's how we tend to think about self control okay we tend to think that self control is all about a disciplined willpower that triumphs over our desires and here's what's counterintuitive the Bible turns that understanding upside down and on its head because the Bible says self-control in your life is actually a product of your desires so that the gospel must be planted so deeply in the very core of who you are that your deepest desires are transformed, producing self-control in your life. And I'm going to give you a brief an embarrassing story from my life about how this works. Okay. I know that I need to get in shape and exercise. Um, I have tried in my life so many times to be disciplined and maintain that commitment. And I'll start with great intentions and I'll go out and I'll buy new shoes and I'm going to start running and I'm going to start jogging. And then after about two weeks, I'm like, I hate jogging. I hate running. Um, there's nothing. The only runner's high I have ever experienced in my life comes when I'm not running. When I know I'm not running, that's when I get a high. Um, my, um, you know, my wife tells me, Nathan, you need to exercise. Um, you know, it's going to help your energy. It's going to make you live longer. My doctor tells me, Nathan, you need to exercise. He shows me printed out data. These numbers are not good. You need to exercise, right? And it never works. But for the past three or four months, I've been jogging at least four times a week, okay? And I've been committed to it, right? So something obviously changed. What, What changed? Um, what finally made the difference was something my five year old daughter said to me. Okay? Dr. Schmochter, Jennifer, what does she know? Um, but listen, to be a man and have your five year old daughter ask you if you're going to have a baby, um, <laughs> that changes everything, right? I mean, I, I had desires that were competing with desires, right? Um, yes, I need to get healthy, but I also have a desire to be lazy. Um, yes, I need to do these things, but, you know, I, I enjoy my comfort. Uh, my doctor says this, yeah, but I don't care about that. But she found a deeper desire. <laughs> and it's called vanity, right? Um When that desire was activated, it produced self-control, right? Your desires produce self-control. It's not that self-control triumphs over your desires. Your desires actually produce self-control in your life. And listen, our lives, they're really out of control. Our thought lives are out of control, the things we say i mean we're out of control all of the addictions that we have in our lives our our feelings and our decision making we're just we're out of control how can the gospel come in and make such a difference that it really impacts our deepest desires in life and, and produces lives that are under control and lives that have come in order, and here's what we have to do. These are my three points this morning. Um, first, you must embrace the right prize. And then, second, you must have singularly focused training in your life. And then, third, you must run while looking. Okay? Embrace the right prize, have singularly focused training, and run while looking. And some of those don't even make sense, but I'm going to explain them as we go, all right? First, you must embrace the right prize. Paul told the Corinthians, not just any prize will do, right? Only the ultimate prize is enough to bring your life under control um, and in order. You've got to embrace a prize that's that's large enough, that's all-encompassing enough that it's going to pull all of your life and all of your desires into a proper order. Um, So, what's the prize that we need to embrace? It's not as simple as you think. Um, If you have your Bible open to that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when Paul wrote that he was striving for this imperishable crown or wreath, and when he uh, said that he exercised discipline so that he wouldn't be disqualified, it's easy when you read that to at first think that Paul's talking about salvation there. Um, But if you can just give Paul the benefit of the doubt here and assume that he's not contradicting everything else that he wrote in the Bible. Um, You'll you'll figure this out, right? Um, He wasn't saying that it's by your hard work that you can become a Christian, and he wasn't saying that you can lose your salvation if you don't do good enough. Um, Paul understood that we're saved entirely and completely by grace, period, right? then what's the prize that Paul wants us to embrace? He actually mentioned it in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Because, see, up until verse 23, Paul was saying, I want everyone to come to know Jesus. And he was saying that he was going to adapt all of his life so that he could tell others about Jesus and that he was going to become like a Jew to the Jew. And, uh, you know, he was, going to, he was going to adapt his life to the one who is under the law and to the one who is outside the law. All so that they could come to know Jesus. And then he wrote verse 23. I'm, and he said, I'm doing this so that I might share or participate in the, ble- in the gospel's blessings, with them in the gospel's blessings. See, he's saying the ultimate prize, the ultimate prize is to embr- that, that we need to embrace is participating in the gospel's blessings. Now, what does that mean? Paul was saying, my goal and my prize in life, the prize I am seeking is to be so is to so deeply and profoundly embody and participate in the gospel that when anyone looks at my life, they will see the beauty and the glory and the wonder of the gospel. He's saying my prize is a life reshaped and reformed and restructured by the beauty of the gospel. Of course, he, he still means that he wants to tell others about Jesus, but it's so much more than just that. He's saying, I want the gospel to shape the way I treat everyone. I want the gospel to shape the way that I react to suffering and disappointment in my life. I want the gospel to shape the way I think about the future. I want the gospel to shape the way I think about money and possessions. The gospel is this announcement of grace and mercy. Right? It's the good news of life that came through death. It's the assurance that you are awash in the love of the Father. It's the story of sacrificial love that we all long for. And listen, I, I want to ask you this question what would it be like? What would it be like for you to embody that in all of your life and to participate so deeply? In that good news that it shaped everything about your life, who you befriend, the way you treat your spouse, the way you spend your paycheck, the way you make space in your life for others, the way you react when you've been wronged, the way you approach your work. I mean, on and on we could go. That's the prize that we have to embrace, that we must embrace. A life thoroughly shaped by the beauty and the freedom of the gospel. Look, I use, if you've been around Grace Community Church for a little while, you know that I use the word broken a lot to describe um, the world and to describe us. And I think it's because it connects with me so deeply in my experience, Um, and and maybe it does you you too, but we just, we feel so disjointed in life. Um, We feel fragmented and and fractured in, in ourselves, in our relationships, and we see that the world is broken and fractured and fragmented. Life is broken. We know it. The world is not what it, what it should be, right? But we also know this about ourselves, that we are broken. And deep down, you know this. You are not what you should be. And neither am I. And Paul is lifting up before us this ultimate prize of a life mended, a life healed, a life pulled together of a life made whole, right? By the beauty of the gospel, a beauty so thorough and so deep that it reshapes and reforms not just our behaviors, but all our longings and all our loves in this life and all our desires in this life. See, Paul used the, the Panhellenic Games um, in ancient Greece, which were very much like the Olympic Games, um, as his metaphor. But even as he used the metaphor, Paul knew that ultimately it was too small to get across his point. That's why he wrote in verse 25, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Look, the wreath on the athlete's head, it was going to turn to dust. And that's not big enough for you and me. Because you know, deep down, you know that you are made to last. You are made to last forever. You weren't made to go down to dust. You weren't made to be forgotten. Right? You you were made for a beauty that would last forever and ever and ever. You are made to be whole. And complete, you are made to love and be loved, you are made to be shaped inside and outside by the wonder of grace, and that 's the first thing you know are you embracing the right prize, a life thoroughly shaped by the beauty and the freedom of the gospel, or are you aiming at a prize that 's either not what you are made for or, or, or is far too small? to pull all of your life together, and to make you whole and complete. Okay, second, you must have singularly focused training we 're really just fleshing out paul 's metaphor here that this singularly focused training is about all of life coming under control and in order for for the prize right The athletes for the Panhellenic games they were required to train for ten months if they were going, prior to the games if they were going to participate, and if they didn 't train for ten months, they were immediately disqualified um, to, to participate. Your whole life had to come under a new order for a time. Listen, the Olympic Games are, are this summer, and part of the reason the Games are so fascinating to us is simply the fact that they only come around every four years, right? And that means so much is on the line for these athletes. Um, these athletes have training for four years to compete, and if they get to the Games and they fail there... It's not as simple as, ah, you'll get them next time, Tiger. (laughs) It might very well be, you'll never get a chance to do this again. Because the next time these games come around will be another four years. And so you know what these athletes have been doing for the past four years. Every part of their lives is micromanaged. Every part of their lives is pulled in line and singularly singularly focused with this goal in mind. They're not showing up to compete Verse 24, everything they're doing is to win the prize, right? They've been paying attention to what they eat and drink, what time they go to bed, what time they get up in the morning. Their exercise programs and their weight training programs, they're highly regimented, right? Their social lives are detailed and regulated. Every decision they make in life is about, will this or won't this help me win the prize? All of life pulled under control and in order, singularly focused on the prize. But here's the question. What does a life look like without being singularly focused um, on the gospel, right? Verse 26, Paul says it looks aimless. It looks purposeless, right? And he's saying it's not just that it's unhelpful. It's actually that it's ultimately destructive in your life. It looks completely disjointed. He says it looks like a boxer beating and flailing at the air, he wrote. Now, let me just give you a a couple of examples of what life looks like when, when the singularly focused training to embody the gospel is missing. What it looks like, let me just say this before I get into the examples, what it looks like is us grasping and clutching at anything and everything to make our lives feel valuable and to feel important and significant and to prove that we matter in life. And so some of us have made the decision that we're grasping for this in our careers. And we think, if I could be successful there, then I would feel important, and then I would feel significant. And listen, no one ever starts down this path thinking, I'm so looking forward to the day that I alienate my family and my spouse, um, and I be, I internalize so much stress that I'm on the verge of a heart attack. No one ever starts out thinking that way, right? But it happens all the time, Right? And it's not because having a successful career is bad. It's not. It just wasn't ever meant to be where you found your your importance and your significance and your value. And it can't pull your life into order. In fact, what we see is that it actually pulls your life out of order. That's why all your relationships and even your health is falling apart. But listen, or maybe you think... You know, being married, just not being alone. I mean, that's the one thing that that will satisfy me and make me feel like I matter in life and assure me of that. Um, Listen, if you make that the main thing in your life, it's going to be hard to make any good decisions about who you marry. Because you will be so needy that you're inevitably going to make bad decisions about who you marry. And it's not that marriage is bad. It's good. It's God's gift to his creation. It's a good thing. But it was never meant to be where you found your value. Or maybe you are married and you feel upset because your spouse, you feel like, is supposed to give you all the affirmation and love you need. Um, Listen, if that's true, you will either always be frustratingly disappointed in life or you will crush your spouse with your unrealistic expectations. No one can live up to that. You weren't meant to ultimately find your value there, your lovability there um, in your spouse. No one's... I mean, we go on and on. No one ever sets out to embezzle money from their company, but it happens. We we hear stories about it all the time. You know, set your... You determine that your status uh, that is proved by the amount of things and money that you have and the seeds of compromise are already sown in your life. Um, And not because money is bad. It's not. But it was never meant to be where you found your security, your comfort, your status. Listen, Yahoo, um, MSN, uh, all the other search engines that are out there, they're all playing second place to Google, right? Right? I mean, we have made it. We have turned it into a verb for crying out loud. No one ever says, "Yeah, I Yahooed something" or "I MSN something," but we're googling stuff on the internet all the time, right? Marissa Mayer uh, calls herself Google's gatekeeper, and she's she's the director of the web products at Google, and it's her job, as she says, to constantly say no. That's how she, I mean, her job is to just say no all the time, right? And no, that distracts from the goal. No, that clutters our vision. No, that's too complex. It, the, you immediately recognize Google's search engine, right? Because there's so much white space. There are, it, it's her job to make sure there are never more than 30 words on that website, on that page. Incredible restraint, incredible self-control, Right? And here's how she explains Google and its competitors with a little metaphor. She says, Google has the functionality of a really complicated Swiss Army knife. Right? I I don't even... Those were big when I was a kid. But, um, you know, blades and tools for everything, right? Uh, So she says, Google has the functionality of a really complicated Swiss Army knife, but it's closed and simple and only there when you need it. But she says that their competitors this is what she says, are all like Swiss Army knives left open. And it's intimidating, and it can even be harmful. Google's competitors, you've been on these, Yahoo, like there are all kinds of stuff on their page. They're grasping, they're clutching at anything and everything, and it's cluttered, and it's disordered. And what Google stumbled upon <laughs> was the beauty of simplicity which uncoincidentally was the title of the article that I read, Um, The Beauty of Simplicity, right? The gospel creates a beauty of simplicity in your life. So singularly focused. I mean, we all know that life... It's complicated, right? There's marriage, there's work, there's hobbies, there's friends, there's enemies, there's money, there's stuff, there's future hopes and opportunities and past baggage that we're dealing with. And it's filled with desires that we have in life, right? For comfort, for peace, for pleasure, for love, for value, for significance. And none of these things are bad in and of themselves. And it's when the God, embodying the beauty of the gospel is your ultimate desire that all of these things... The stuff in your life, the relationships of your life, but also your desires and love, that's where they begin to fall into order and under control. See, it's one thing to behold the beauty of simplicity in a website, but it's another thing altogether to behold that beauty in a person. I mean, when you see someone... So singularly focused, so full of integrity, and so sure and so confident of purpose, it's unbelievably attractive to you. It's magnetic. We are drawn to that beauty. And you know where you see it best? In Jesus. Right? So singularly focused to embody and reflect his father's beauty in every aspect of his life. It's seen in the way he welcomes the tax collector and the prostitutes. And the way he repels and wages war on the legalistic Pharisees. It's seen in a zeal for his father's house that consumes him. He's both full of patience with his constantly failing disciples... Right? And he's completely demanding in his call for discipleship. It's seen in how he set his face to Jerusalem, right? Undeterred, undeterred even from the death that awaited him there, right? And the cross that was laid out before him. And that's real beauty when you see it. What about us? Are we like the athlete that is so singularly focused in his training? Everything pulled. Into control um, or under control and into order and if we aren't, how do we get there and That brings me to my third and last point here. You must run while looking, okay, what in the world does that mean? Um, it, yes, it does mean don't run with your eyes closed, um, but in in fact it's a metaphor um, which is like this whole passage you've got to be singularly focused in your training in order to get the prize but but listen, training is training, right? Into verse 24, to get the prize, Paul says you have to run. The verbs in this passage, they're all present tense in the Greek. Um, constant, s- sustained, ongoing effort and running. And you have to run while looking, I'm telling you. Uh, let me tell you very quickly what I mean by that. Think about Jesus, Here's this picture of Jesus. You read through the Gospels, and, and you're going to see this. He was always retreating to pray, to spend time with his Father. And the disciples at times get pretty annoyed with this behavior, right? They, they go look for him, and he's not there. He slipped away while they were still sleeping. And they would have to go looking for him and find him uh, because he had, he had slipped away to pray. And when—let me ask you this question. When do you and I most often run to God in prayer? when life is falling apart, and when things aren't going well, and when all our plans aren't working out, that's when we hit our knees and we start praying. Not every time, but if you read through the Gospels, it's pretty clear that the majority of times that Jesus retreated to pray, it wasn't because things were going wrong at all. In fact, it was the exact opposite It's when the crowds were coming in droves and his ministry was growing in its success and its impact. And when he had the most opportunities for ministry and when they wanted to make him king, that's when he pulled back and retreated in prayer. And there's got to be a reason for that. And I think it's because he was so singularly focused. His eye was fixed on his prize his life was completely under control. He wanted to get away and make sure he focused on that prize, not on becoming the king they wanted. Not on even all this ministry success. So what was Jesus's prize? What kind of prize? I mean, you think about it. What kind of prize would there have to be to motivate the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills What kind of prize would there have to be to motivate the one who spoke everything into existence? What kind of prize would it have to be for the one whose glory the heavens cannot hope to contain, the psalmist writes? Do you know what his prize was? It was you. He was thinking about you. That was his prize. That kept him focused, that set his face towards Jerusalem. I mean, here's how the author of Hebrews put it in chapter 12, for the joy set before him, right? What was the joy that was set before Jesus, the creator of all things? It was you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Everything in his life was about you. Just so that he could have you. Listen, even when he was experiencing great success and opportunities, he got away. He got away because his eye was fixed on you. And here's the thing. I want you to hear Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 together. Because I just, I only read a portion of verse 2 to you just a moment ago. And here's where you need to process the counterintuitive way of the gospel. Here's what those verses say. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's stop there just for a second. Let us throw off everything that hinders, singularly focused training, get rid of anything and everything in life that distracts. And the sin that so easily entangles, embracing the prize of embodying the beauty of the gospel in all of life. He says, let us run with perseverance. And how are we supposed to run? I'm telling you, we are to run while looking. Very next verse. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of his father. The gospel isn't about you getting a willpower that triumphs over your desires. It's about getting a new, deeper desire that produces self-control in your life. What would change in your life if your greatest desire in life was simply to delight in your father's delighting in you? What if you realized that in the gospel, everything you needed to be convinced that you were significant, valuable, important, and lovable was yours in Jesus? The Son of God endured the cross for you. I mean, if, you could, if that could become real to you, it would change everything about your life. It would pull all your other desires in life under control and in order behind this supreme desire of delighting in your fathers, delight in you. Now, now listen, it's time for the big finish here, wrapping it up. Um, But listen, you need to stay with me in this final illustration because it is a negative illustration. um, But I promise I'm going to try to flip it on you in the end. Um, But stay with me. Years ago, I heard a pastor relay a conversation that he had with a man in his congregation that I've never forgotten. Um, In fact, I've forgotten who the pastor was, but I haven't forgotten the story. Um, This this man that this pastor was having this conversation with, um, he had had an affair on his wife that had lasted for years um, and had ruined his life and his marriage. And as the pastor and this man talked, the pastor asked, how were you able to go, go through with it for so long? And this man told him how every weekend, his wife would go away uh, to uh, uh, this other town where his mother-in-law lived, or her mother, and, um, and she was sick, and he, she would take care of him. So she was gone every weekend. He said, that's when my mistress would come over. And, and this is what he said. He said, and when she came over, the first thing that we did every time was we went through the entire house, and we turned every picture of my wife upside down. Pictures on the coffee table turned flat upside down. Pictures on the wall turned around to face the wall. Pictures on the refrigerator turned around to face the refrigerator. And this is what he told his pastor. He said, I just couldn't go through with it while seeing those pictures and seeing her smiling and beaming in love for me. I couldn't go through with it listen to me. This is where we turn it on you, right? The only way to run is while looking, while looking and seeing the smile of God over you, his favor over you, his love over you. What would it do to you to see your savior beaming in love for you from the cross with his arms stretched out in the moment of your temptations and struggles in life. What would it be like for you to see your Savior beaming in love for you while you thought through your relationships, how you spent your money, how you reacted to suffering and disappointment in your life or when you were wronged? It would begin to change everything about our lives. It's counterintuitive, but it's getting a deeper desire that produces the self-control in our lives, that deeper desire to delight in our Father's delight in us. St. Augustine began his famous confessions with prayer, and I included a portion of it on the front of your bulletin. Our hearts, he wrote, are restless till they rest in God. And a man named David Paulson, in an insightful article, I'm almost done here, wrote about this quote from Augustine, and this is what he wrote. Augustine's sense of the human heart is that we are grasping creatures. We are willful and impulsive. Our longings and loves are disordered and corrupted. See, by nature, we are grasping willful and impulsive. The opposite of self-controlled. Why? Because our longings and our loves in this life are disordered. We've taken good things and we've tried to make them ultimate things. When do they come back into proper order? Only when we find our deep rest in the God who loves us through Jesus. And so my question to you as we end is this. What are you doing? What will you do today? What will you do throughout this week to find your rest in God through Jesus and to delight in his delighting in you? Because that is the key to self-control in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Uh, We thank you for all that we have had the opportunity to participate in this morning, to hear our children sing your praise and to sing about this race that's laid out before us. And Father, um, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would send your spirit, that you would pour out your spirit in order that he would make the gospel real to us. Um, And not just in this moment, but later today and throughout this week, remind us of the beauty of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would give us the wonderful sense and assurance that you are completely and fully delighted in us because of what Jesus has done for us in our place. And Father, we pray that that would drive us forward, that it would pull all of our life under control and in order as we seek to embody the beauty of the gospel in every aspect of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.